So, over the last six days. So, last Sunday, went straight from um, Gabriella's wedding in out kind of near Lancaster area, not that quite that far, but that area, Exton, and drove to Newark, getting my COVID test along the way to meet up with a guy named Justin, who some of you know, his family that comes here in the summer, who's also been involved with refugee work over the last few years, to head out to Greece for... Um, just a whirlwind trip. So we left on Sunday, landed in Athens on Monday, then took a puddle jumper from Athens to Lesvos and landed in Lesvos on Monday evening. And so I know that some of you are new. Matter of fact, we were talking about this the other day on a text thread. I figure how many of you have started coming since the pandemic? Can you raise your hand if you started coming since the pandemic? I know a lot of you guys uh, just are afraid to raise your hand because you know, you didn't wear deodorant today or something. Um, so that's fine. Um, I, I would guess at least a third of the people here started coming during the pandemic um, or since that point in time. And so a lot of you guys don't know some of the backdrop here. Um, I would say about three years ago, when we were still in the North Cape May building, um, God started opening up some doors. We were asking him and he would move and he really opened up some doors and gave us some opportunities and a few of us were, had the privilege of going to Greece um, on a trip with a guy who we barely knew, but we had gone to Budapest with him about maybe six years ago to teach a seminar at a conference on reaching people on the move, which we had no experience with. <laughs> but, you know, when Gina emails someone and says, my husband would love to teach a course on this, and they say yes, that's no skin off our back. Okay, and so we got invited to go to Greece, and we spent one week on the island of Lesbos and one week on the uh, in the city of Thessaloniki. So Lesbos, during the Syrian War, was home to like ten thousand refugee arrivals a day. At that point in time, they were just landing, being put on a ferry, and then being shipped um, to to the mainland, to Athens, where they would be begin this arduous walk, sneaking through borders, trying to get up into Macedonia, into Serbia, into Hungary, into Austria, and into Germany. And of course, as probably many of you remember along the way, it became increasingly difficult because you had thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of refugees who were arriving and the, eventually Hungary first put up a border fence, they said, we're done. Like, we're done, we can't handle this. We've had like 80,000 people walk through in the last week, that sort of stuff. But God brought us to Lesbos, and on Lesbos, what we saw was a, 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 a refugee camp um, that was designed for maybe a couple thousand people. I don't remember exactly, 3,000 or 5,000, something like that. When we first went, it had like 12. Um, two years ago, when we were there most recently, when the McCumbers were there most recently, there was 22,000 people. And basically, it was the threshold of hell. And I don't, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. It was the threshold of hell. Raw sewage, just running down, you know, maybe 100 porta-potties for 22,000 people, um, that kind of thing. But the silver lining in all this is that the Holy Spirit was moving in power that you could share the gospel all day long with Muslims and they wanted to hear it. You would sit down at a table, they would sit down at the table and they'd say, tell me about Jesus. And it was like fishing in a barrel. I mean, it was, uh, it was, the, it was really amazing what the Lord was doing. And so we were overjoyed to have that opportunity. 
And um, during those next few months, as we, as we went to Greece, um, the elders all went on a vision trip except for Breton, who held down the fort. Everybody can clap for Breton. And um, that's right, Breton, way to hold it down. And, and during that time, we just felt convinced that the Lord wanted us to be part of this. And uh, we were praying. We didn't know what God wanted. Um, one thing God really revealed for sure was that the McCumbers were going to go there for a 90-day tourist visa, which they did. Um, but then about a month in, riots started breaking out on the island. And so they had to go to Athens for a hot minute because it was getting really intense. Um, and then this thing came out called the coronavirus. And that was two years ago. There was a two-week pause to stop the spread. And as we all know, that lasted a little bit longer. And so um, the McCumbers had to leave prematurely after about a month or five weeks, something like that. And then the last two years was just nuts, right? Well, about a year ago, David and I went to the island of Samos, which was another one of the refugee hotspots to see what was going on. And honestly, we didn't see a whole lot. And so Justin, he invited me probably less than a month ago. He said, hey, let's go to Lesbos. And um, I talked with the elders and my wife, and everybody said, let's just do it. Let's just see. And so um, when David and I were in Samos last year, at the beginning of our time, God gave us a word for the week. And what I mean by that is I was reading the Bible, and I feel like God put a passage on my heart. And I shared that passage with David, and he felt like it resonated with his heart. And it almost became like our theme for the week. And this is what it was last July. Uh, really random from Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. And as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. So basically, we, we went to Samos last year, and we made some YouTube videos while we were there that you guys saw and saw my fishing abilities. Um, but by and large, it was a very uneventful trip. But it almost felt in line with what the Lord had put on our heart in Ecclesiastes, the idea being like, keep throwing bread upon the water, which we did. It was not helping with the fish, Okay. <laughs> while the Greeks next to us are catching pikes that are this big, and I caught a rockfish this big, but we, had, we took it with perspective, so it looked a lot bigger. Um, but to be, and don't be like the farmer who watches the clouds, and because he watches the clouds, he never does his work, right? And that was our theme last July. And so, you know, we were there, we went, we don't know what God did, but we were faithful, and uh, there's joy and obedience so as I was in Newark Airport waiting for Justin to arrive, I was just praying and asking God, God, would you give me, give me a passage, give me guidance, give me direction, give me a word from you that I would have, uh, like last year, that I would be able to say, this is, this is the marching order for the week. And I felt like God was prompting my heart to read 2 Corinthians. So on the way over, I read the book of 2 Corinthians in one sitting, which I highly recommend you do that with all books. 
you know, from time to time. And I read the book of Corinthians, second Corinthians rather. And I just made some notes about things that God struck my heart with. And then over the course of the week, I would read a couple chapters a day. So I read the book of second Corinthians twice over the week. Um, on that plane, I felt like God gave me a very clear passage, really two passages that became, and I really believed as soon as I read it, I was like, this is the word for the week. Um, and uh, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul had plans to go to Troas, but he gets redirected. And um, he gets redirected because of circumstances. He can't find Titus. It's making him nervous. And this is what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and following. Paul says, I got redirected. And he says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma, now we're in Leviticus, right? Aroma is a sacrificial term. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing, the fragrance from death to death, to the other, life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul is essentially saying, look, the, res the, the redirections don't matter because God is leading us and God is with us and we are in triumphal procession with him. And this idea of triumphal procession, the New Living Translation really does a great job translating it. It's this idea of we are Jesus' captives and he's leading us in procession, parading us before the enemy who he just captured us from. It's, a, it's like a good captivity, right? And he's bringing us to the New Jerusalem. And so the point is that since we have the Holy Spirit of Jesus living within us as we marinate in his presence, we smell like death to the perishing. But to those who, because sacrifices smell like death. But we smell wonderful to those who are alive because they understand the meaning and significance of the sacrifice. And so to the one, it smells like the stench of death, and to the other, it's the aroma of obedience, of joy, of life. So that was the first passage that God put on my heart, just this idea of we are always led in triumphant procession, period. We are always led in triumphant procession. We never have to say, well, I don't know. No, you are in triumphant procession. Even in the midst of your sin, if you are in Christ, you are being led through your sin in triumphal procession because your sin has been conquered, okay? And the second passage that was on my heart was this, and I'm going to read this one from the New Living Translation because it's a little clearer. 2 Corinthians 10, 13 and following. He says, we will not boast about things done outside our area of authority. We will boast only about what has happened within the boundaries of the work God has given us, which includes our working with you. We are not reaching beyond these boundaries when we claim authority over you as if we had never visited you, for we were the first to travel all the way to Corinth with the good news of Christ. Nor do we boast and claim credit for the work someone else has done. Instead, we hope that your faith will grow so that the boundaries of our work among you will be extended. This is the important part here. Then we will be able to go and preach the good news in other places far beyond you 
where no one else is working. Then there will be no question of our boasting about work done in someone else's territory. What Paul's talking about here is this idea that he has a relationship with them that he's built in Corinth, and he wants this relationship to be used as a sort of launching point to more ministry in new places. That's Paul's idea. And you see, whenever we go on these kinds of trips, it's very different um, from a trip where you know where you're going to go and you're going to build a house. At least it can be. It depends on the focus of your mind and of your heart. Even when you go to build a house in a third world country, the focus of the trip is not to build the house, okay? And this is something that I think everybody in this room, if you have any concept of short-term missions, you need to immediately just rip that out of your head, rip it out of your heart, and replace it with this. The trip is never the goal. The trip is never the goal. You go to Czech Republic and speak English, it's not about the trip. You go to New York City this July with Christian, it's not about the trip. The trip is never the goal. The goal is always to find that one person with whom you can carry on a relationship and then over time leverage that relationship for the gospel. That's a major paradigm shift in the way that we view trips. See, even when you're in the refugee camp and you're handing out diapers to young moms, it's not about the diaper. It's about building the relationship with the mom or whatever it might be. So going into this trip, this was on my mind. We are led in triumphant procession in Christ. And as I thought back on our trip three years ago, I realized that on our trip three years ago, we don't know what we accomplished for Jesus, but, we, but we, we built three relationships. We built a relationship with a young man named Hadi, who this church still supports to this day, who baptized over 400 Afghans, and now became a refugee again, willingly, in Germany, because there's almost half a million Afghans, okay? We built a relationship with an Egyptian named Michael, who also moved to Germany to work among Arabic-speaking refugees. So among Persian refugees, among Arabic-speaking refugees, and the church supports him as well. Both of those relationships were made three years ago. And they didn't, they weren't, um, how would I say it? They weren't like productive relationships until the last 12 months. But the relationship was made. And then the third is a guy named Hassan, who we witnessed to while we were there, and then over time, not because of us, but because of Hadi, Hassan and his whole family wound up coming to faith and being baptized. They now live in Sweden. So that was in my mind. Relationship becomes a launch pad for pushing into new unreached places. Okay? You guys following me so far? All right, thank you. Thank you, Michaela. All right, so Monday we arrive around 4 p.m., um, on the island of Lesvos, okay? And uh, what the first thing we do is we go back to Moria Camp. Moria Camp burned down about a year and a half ago. Um, had 22,000 people in it. Uh, caught fire somehow. They're still arguing about how it caught fire in court. Amazingly, no one died. Like a miracle of God, no one died because, like I said, it was the threshold of hell. And as I took video and pictures, I sent some pictures and video back to David. I know one was on the YouTube podcast. Um, you would never have known there was a refugee camp there. I mean, the olive trees were coming back to life. Like the, where the tandoori oven had been built, it was torn down. And then the, 
You know, it was just the, everything was coming back to life. All it's like nature had reclaimed Moria camp. It was a new life up from the ashes. And I turned to Justin and I said, this is like a resurrection. This is like a resurrection is happening on this island. Um, and it really felt like that all over the island. The, the Greek community felt a little bit more alive. Everything felt a little bit less depressed and a little bit more come to life. And as we were there at the Moria camp, there was a couple Afghan men who were riding bicycles. Like, who would have thought we would have saw refugees riding bicycles three years ago? They're riding bicycles. They stopped. We talked with them. We were able to give them Gospels of John and Persian. Um, and then we went down as we're walking down, and we, we saw a group of maybe six to eight Africans sitting under a tree. We went over. We introduced ourselves. They were having a couple of biris <laughs> to celebrate Easter. That's what they said. And we sat down with them. We joined them. We prayed with them um, and just tried to witness to them. And, um, and then we went to bed, and, and that was our first evening. And on Tuesday, Hadi had graciously lined up one meeting for us with a guy named Christos. We had no idea who Christos was. We just knew he was a guy. We didn't know if he was 25 or 85. And so we're waiting at this Greek cafe for Christos to show up. And Christos shows up. And lo and behold, Christos is the um, Greek director of your relief, which is like the Greek Samaritan's purse, you know. And uh, he sits with us. He's also uh, the, uh, the local pastor of the only church on the island of Lesbos, um, the, uh, which is a, he's a Presbyterian pastor of a church of about 15 people, right, on an island of 90,000, okay, or 70,000 now, something like that. And so for the next two hours, we just talked with Christos, and he was like a very, he was like an engineer by trade before he, you know, started this Your Relief, and it was like, it was a little difficult to know if he hated us or not. <laughs> But, like, we just kind of kept, you know, using our Jersey charm, you know? <laughs> and, um, and then at some point in time, I think it was when I started talking about Revolve and, and he realized I was a pastor, he just kind of, like, dropped his guard. And he started telling me about what's going on in the camp and how it's actually very different because it's no longer about quantity, it's about quality. Because now it's not just slap a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. Now it's actually things like, well, no, we're organizing soccer games for the kids in the camp, and we get to play with them, and we get to sit with them, and we get to teach, um, you know, we get to teach the kids math, and the parents or the teachers who are volunteers actually get to build relationships. And you still can't proselytize in the camp, but there's so much opportunity to build relationship. And how they just bought 14 acres of an olive farm across the street from Moria, and what they want to do is they want to teach refugees how to um, do how to take care of olive trees so that they have a job skill. And they want to encourage the refugees to stay in Greece because apparently there's bazoodles, which is a real number, look it up, bazoodles of um, olive trees in, in Greece that nobody cares for anymore because you only make like three euros per liter of per bottle of oil. And Greeks, you can't pay a Greek 20 euros a day to do that. They don't want to do that work. But the refugees will do it if you can teach them. And so they had this vision for, for just rejuvenating the community and bringing in, for example, they started a community center where they could bring in someone who's going to teach computer programming to refugees for six weeks. And if you bring in a Christian, then it's six weeks of building relationships and building these things so that you can have redemptive conversations 
And as we listen to him talk, we realize there's still opportunity here. It's very different. It's no longer like deworming orphans, you know, and there's, and, and if you're honest, there's something really attractive about the idea of just like walking into like the chaos and the muck of Moria where it's like, I'm just going to love on these people. And that stage is past. But this stage has potential to be more spiritually fruitful, if that makes sense. And he had such a good conversation with us that he decided he was going to pass us on to somebody else named Savas, who was the chaplain for the refugee workers, as well as overseeing something called the Oasis Center, which is a little, a little uh, it's basically like a community center across the street run by Christians. And Savas, we met with him for an hour and a half or so, and he told us about the discipleship and how God has raised up national workers, um, you know, a couple from Germany who were raised in Iran who are coming down to do a discipleship, and, and these, um, these missionaries who learned Farsi so they could disciple, and how God has really raised up people who are using national language to, to disciple, and that was exciting to us. And he's talking about deliverance, ministry, which when he used that term, he meant people being rescued from spiritual bondage, right? Coming from these dark areas. And he's telling us this story about this couple from Sierra Leone, who I'm going to share about more in a minute, who a couple weeks ago came to him, uh, came actually to their church service at, among like the expats um, at that center, and then wound up asking for prayer afterwards and was totally in bondage to demons. And, um, and how, sh- how they were delivered. And we met this couple named Sam and Bonnie at that. At the, and then we went to the center that he told us about. And we met this couple named Sam and Bonnie on furlough who were between assignments, like in living in different places. And they have four or five kids, and their two oldest kids were volunteering in the camp. And then they were in the Oasis Center with their three youngest doing homeschool and just loving on any refugees who came up for, ch- for uh, tea, tea and biscuits and these sorts of things. And the whole point being that as these things came our way, we just tried to embrace it. Okay, we're with Sam and Bonnie. We're going to encourage Sam and Bonnie right now. That's why we're here. We're with um, Savas. We're just going to ask him questions. We're going to listen to him. We're going to pray for him. With Christos, we're just going to ask him questions. We're going to listen to him. And then while we're meeting with Sam and Bonnie, uh, Eugene and Fatmata come in, who is the couple from Sierra Leone who had been delivered from demons, and they start sharing their story with us. And they just were completely beaming with joy, like joy of the Holy Spirit was tangible upon them. And just three weeks before, um, when Fatmata had come in, she had, was, she had ropes tied across her chest, around her back. She was part of a secret society in Sierra Leone. She hadn't slept in weeks, okay, because of demonic oppression. Um, Eugene had come to faith in, had come to faith in Sierra Leone, and then because of that, he was part of the secret society in Sierra Leone, and he refused to worship his his father's decapitated head. And as they went, because he refused to worship his his father's decapitated head, they tied him up in the bush for a week. No food, no water for a week. And someone he still doesn't know who sounds like an angel untied him, and he just ran. He doesn't know who untied him. Someone untied him, and he ran. And he went, ran to Guinea, and then he found someone who he knew in Guinea who put him on a plane to Iran, and Iran to Turkey, and Turkey to Greece. And, and both of these guys now beaming in Jesus because God had delivered them from these chains of bondage. 
and we were able to pray over them. And then on our way out, we saw six more Africans sitting under a tree, and we went out, and, and we were, they were all Muslim, and they were sharing their story with us, and we were able to pray over them in the name of Jesus. And as we prayed, they all got silent, and we prayed for them to receive visions and dreams. And, and then we went over by the pier, and there was Afghans fishing, and we tried to share with them, but they didn't speak English not so good. But we were able to give them Gospels of John, which three of the four were excited to receive in Persian. And we went to bed that night, and, um, and I didn't want to say it out loud, but Justin said it the next morning because his wife said it to him, which was like, I kind of felt like we were done. <laughs> like, like I kind of was like, we, this is exactly what we came to see. Like we came to see if there was still stuff going on here. I, I almost felt like we could go home. That was how I felt. And so um, we woke up the next morning with that same sense of like, well, I feel like we can go home. And, but as we were praying, I said, um, let's go to Chios. And uh, Chios is an island that David and I had talked about going to last year, and it didn't work out. But Chios is another island that had received refugees. And on the island of Chios, which is nobody knows of any work. And we, so we reached out to Christos and Savas, and they said, there's no ministries on Chios there's no Christians that we know of on Kios. Uh, there's no work on Kios. And so we can't even connect you with anybody. And so we said, well, worst case scenario, Justin and I go on a honeymoon on a Greek island. And so we, um, so we, we went to Kios. Um, nobody knew where the refugee camp was. Nobody knew if there was refugees still really on the island. Um, we were driving around the harbor. We didn't see a single refugee. And, um, and so we checked in our hotel, and I just said to the guy, are there refugees around? <laughs> Which you really don't want to ask the Greeks, because the Greeks aren't too happy that you're there. You know what I mean? But he was like, yeah, there's somewhere, like, and he circled this area in the center of the island. And so the next day, we ran in a car, and we, and we drove out there, and um, it was the middle of nowhere. Like, when I say the middle of nowhere, it would be like if, all, if there was a refugee camp in, like, Maurice River. And there's like the Wawa and the gas station, and that's it, and then some refugees. You know what I mean? Um, and so there was like a little three-table cafe that had like a, a soda machine, and then that was it. And so we, um, so there was nowhere where the refugees were gathering, no clear places where they're walking to the grocery store or whatever it might be. And so we just drove up, and we're wandering around, and we just prayed, and we said, Lord, just give us wisdom here. And we saw two Africans sitting under a tree. And so we went over to them, and we tried to have spiritual conversation working through the conversation quadrant, which we'll teach you guys about in the hub, going from casual to meaningful to spiritual to gospel conversation. You know, how do you do that process? Introducing ourselves. Hey, where are you from? Oh, how long have you been here? Tell me a little bit about Sierra Leone. Why did you leave? Oh, you don't want to talk about it. Okay. Um, in, in Sierra Leone, are most people Muslim or Christian? Oh, they're mostly Muslim. What are you? Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, can you tell me about that? And started going through this process. And as we talked with these two men, Hassan and Mohammed, um, we realized these are believing men. These are believing men, both born Muslim, Muslim families, but now believers. And, um, and Mohammed says to me, he says, we go over here to this Greek Orthodox church, there's a building over there. We went there to go to church, and it was locked. And we know there's another Orthodox church in town, and so we walked all the way to town, and we went there, and it was locked. 
And he said, and so we can't worship God. And I said, that's because the Greek Orthodox Church is a whitewashed tomb, that on the outside it looks nice, but inside it's dead. And I said, the Holy Spirit's not there. And I said, um, I said but let's read the word together. And so we read uh, part of Mark together about where Jesus talk, invites Peter, the calling of Peter. And then we brought them into town to grab some groceries, and we said, look, if you, we gave them our WhatsApp, and we said, if you want to meet tomorrow, we'll study the Bible more. We're willing to do that. And um, that night, they texted us, and they said, let's study the Bible tomorrow. So Friday morning, we picked up groceries, we head back over, and there's four people waiting for us now. There's two women and two men, both, all four of them from Sierra Leone. And as we're talking with them, uh, we ask them what they're thankful for that day. What are you thankful for today? And they're just overjoyed that they're going to study the Bible. Now, you have to remember the stuff these people have been through um, has been rough, right? All raised Muslim, everybody, for the most part, everyone went Sierra Leone to Guinea, Guinea to Iran, Iran to Turkey, Turkey to Greece. It's not an enjoyable trip. Almost 100% of women are raped along the way, just to give you an idea. It's a very terrible experience, and then to arrive in a refugee camp is just compounds it. But there was joy in these four believers because today they were going to study the Word of God. And so we were thanking the Lord in prayer, and then we asked them how to came to, they came to faith. And just, you know, one or two, three, four, five sentences each. Um, Hassan, uh, there was a war in his part of Sierra Leone. He's probably about my age, maybe a little bit older. And he fled to a neighboring city, and there was no war. There was no war. And so he was there hiding, and um, that the city where he was in is mostly Fulani which is a tribe, um, an unreached tribe, a Muslim tribe. Um, and so he was, it was mostly Fulani, and he didn't speak Fulani because in Sierra Leone they speak English and Creole mostly, and then whatever your tribal dialect might be. And so he went to the mosque, but it was in Fulani, and, and so then someone told him there was a church that spoke English. So he decided to go to the church because at least he could go worship somewhere, and he said he would just go. He said, I'm going to go and I'll worship Allah. I'm not going to worship Christian God, but at least I can hear it in my own language because nobody here speaks English. And he started going, and he noticed he felt differently in his heart when he would listen to the Word of God read and listen to Christians. And over time, as he started to apply the things he was hearing, he noticed his life was better than when he was going and applying with the things that they told him in the mosque. And so in some point in time, he became a believer. Then Muhammad told us, and now um, Hassan, by the way, is from the Tem people, T-E-M-N-E. And so then Muhammad, also from the Tem people, when he was a little, when he was a teenager, I think, a friend told him about Jesus, and he started going to church, and he said he found when he would go to church, his life was getting better. It was improving. That is, he was being kinder to people, and something was changing within him, and he realized that God was changing him and that Jesus was real. Fatmata, who's Susu, um, her friend told her as a child about Jesus, and she started going to church. Much the same testimony. I started going, I started learning and hearing and realizing my life was better when I applied what Christianity taught than when I applied these teachings of Islam. And then there was Doris, who is from the Karanko tribe. And Doris, um, again, all four of these raised in Muslim homes, well, her family 
Uh, her friend told her about Jesus when she was a little girl, and she came to believe in Jesus and would go to church. And, to, and then her family got so sick of it, they would tie her to a chair every Sunday so she couldn't go to church. And she would have to try to escape so that she could go to church. And so she would, every week, they would tie her up in the house, and every week she would try to wriggle her way out of the rope so that she could sneak off to church. And then her family would get mad and rinse repeat until everybody ran away. And so we're listening to these stories of how Jesus saved them, and it's amazing, obviously. And um, then we realize none of them have a Bible. So we download the Bible app on their phones, and, and we give um, Muhammad my Bible because he didn't have a phone. And they just were amazed that the Bible was, you could get it on your phone for free. And, um, and we were it was having it read out loud in Creole, and they were like, I can't believe this. <laughs> it was just blowing their mind. And so we, we listened to Acts chapter 2 in Creole, in Sierra Leone Creole, and uh, on the Bible app, and we talked about it. What's your favorite part? What did you like? They all thought it was hilarious that people are accused the apostles of being drunk. That was everybody's favorite part. <laughs> They're like, I like it when he accused me of being drunk. It's only 9 o'clock. <laughs> That was everybody's favorite part. And, um, and then we just went through this, and we just said, you know, what is the gospel as explained in this passage? And they were able to articulate the gospel back. And we said, have all of you repented and believed in the gospel? Have you repented and believed? Have you repented? Yes, 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 yes. All right, Peter says, repent and believe. He says, be baptized. Have all of you been baptized? Yes, yes, yes. Muhammad's like, I haven't been baptized. I said, well, what do you want to do about it? He's like, let's get baptized today. All right, that's what he said. Let's do it. Just like the Ethiopian in, uh, in Acts chapter 8. Why put it off? Let's get baptized today. And then Peter says, this promise isn't just for you, it's also for your family and for all who are far off. And I said, who do you know who's, who's far off from God and your family? And I said, well, all of our family are Muslims. And I said, well, they're also all in Sierra Leone. And I said, but you can pray for them. Let's pray for them. And I said, what about in the camp? I said, oh, mostly it's Muslims. And there's a lot of Somalis right now, and there's a lot of Sudanese right now, and, and um, all Muslims, very strong Muslims. Somalis are very strong Muslims. And they, I said, well, we pray that we can have opportunities to share the gospel with them, because what did we read yesterday? That we got a fish for men. And so then we said, well, let's talk about this, this early church, what this looked like. And they're talking about the early church. And I said to them, what is stopping you from just doing this in the camp. And they just kind of looked at each other. Like the thought had never crossed their mind because we're raised in a culture where we go to church, right? And even they are raised in a culture where Christians go to this church building, you know? And they were like, nothing. And so we said, well, what would it look like? And so we taught them how to do the Discovery Bible study as a church. We explained the marks of a healthy church to them from Acts chapter 2. And we explained to them, you can be a church right here under this tree that you have the word, you have the spirit, you have one another in Christ, that's the making of a church. That's what it is. You don't need a building. You don't need a pastor. You don't need any of those things. What you need is the word and the spirit and one another. That's the makings of a church. And then over time, as churches walk towards health, then you see things like elders come into fruition and that sort of stuff. And so they were overjoyed, like literally cheering out loud that they could be a church under the tree. 
And Muhammad got a bunch of reeds and he started weaving a cross together so he could hang it on the, church, on the tree. So they could be the first church of Kios. And, um, and then we prayed over them and commissioned them in the authority of Jesus to be a church that makes disciples in the camp and that when God brings them to different cities, whether that's Athens or wherever it might be, that they would remember that they don't need to look for an Orthodox church to attend. They can gather other believers and they can start a church. And they just thought that was the most amazing thing on the planet, that they could do that, that they felt empowered. And so from there, we drove to the ocean where Justin baptized Muhammad, and we prayed over them on the shores, committed them to the word, committed them to the spirit, celebrated and left and flew home. And you know, this story sounds exhilarating when you share. I know that I'm going over, but I hope you guys can humor me. Um, I apologize, kids, teachers. The story sounds exhilarating when you say it all together, but moment by moment, it was really normal. You know, like when you unpack it, it sounds like, whoa. It was not like that in the moment. In the moment, it just was so normal. And as we wrote it down, we kept remembering Jesus leads us in triumphant procession. Jesus is with us. He's working in us. He's working through us. We are a fragrance of life to the living and, and fragrance of death to the perishing. And, um, and really, all we need to do is show up with the right heart. And that's what we need. And if God wants to do something, he will. And as, as we recounted this story to one another, to our families, to the leaders of Revolve, it just felt like the book of Acts. And, um, and that got me thinking, maybe we romanticize these things a little too much. You know, we look at, we look at, at the book of Acts, and Paul says, well, we went outside the city to the place where we supposed there were some women praying, and one of them was a lady who a dealer in purple cloth, and we told her about Jesus. She invited us to stay at her house. But we don't know all the other circumstances. It's like Paul's walking to the city, and he's like, I got to go pee. Uh, you know what I mean? And he's like, I, we got to find a place. You know, we don't know all of the little things that God does that winds, us, winds up having us walk in triumphant procession while we just go about our lives. And maybe all of this is actually much more natural than we picture in our minds when we read. And why should we be surprised at the idea that God still does this? just because we're so conditioned by American church. Why should we doubt that he isn't going to do the exact same things there and, and maybe here? Maybe everywhere from Wildwood to Woodbine, that these things can still happen. And so this trip was not some testimony to our greatness, because between jet lag and getting lost and almost flying to the wrong island, because they were all speaking Greek and no one told us to get off the plane, and not being able to speak the language most of the time, it wasn't because we had some intense prayer time or because we were fasting for 10 days. We had our families praying and friends praying and you guys praying, but God just kind of did it. And I think maybe the lesson for all of us is that he wants to work through you too. And so here's my closing charge the pandemic made all of us, and I think I can say this with pretty much certainty, 
about 100% of the people in the room. The pandemic made all of us, in one form or another, maybe all of the above, either lazy or fearful or angry or discouraged. Maybe made you all four. But I think it's time to get up and start pushing forward. Because Jesus is still moving. And sometimes we get so discouraged and we get our tunnel vision and we focus on these hurdles and these problems and we forget that Jesus is still alive. And so I think we need to push forward in our own county because let's not be so foolish to think that like Jesus is done. He's like, well, I don't, there's no more people in the county to get saved. Like, I, you know, they had their chance. I don't think that's what Jesus is thinking. And we need to push forward in our mission partnerships because honestly, God is providing so many people right now. Um, now with these additional people who were coaching on WhatsApp, they've been having church every day, by the way. Um, and and they, I received like four voicemails from them while I was preaching. Um, I, I think I wrote down 15, and this doesn't even include like, it doesn't even include people like Christian and Elena. This is just international contacts. 15 international contacts who need coaching. That's insane. And that's the fulfillment of Acts chapter 10, or 2 Corinthians 10, where he says, I'm going to expound your boundaries, right? And so realize we have people who God has graciously through relationships provided, and we need to figure out how to be faithful. So we have to be faithful in our own county. We have to be faithful in the globe because God has given us opportunities and we need to be thankful and faithful in them because we cannot squander them. And I guess what I want to leave you guys with is this. Look, we have the word. We have the word more fully revealed than the early church did in its entirety, easily accessible to you, okay? We have the same spirit. You don't have a junior Holy Spirit. You have the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. You have the same Holy Spirit that dwelled within Paul and Peter. The same Holy Spirit dwells within you. The same Holy Spirit that hovered over the waters and the chaos in Genesis 1 that created all things lives in you. And we have one another as the body of Christ called to this together. I think we just need to be ready and willing to be used. And whether we have an experience like Samos, where we didn't do anything wrong, or whether we have an experience like Kios, where we didn't do anything right, God just decided he wanted to move. And so I think it's time to push forward with that perspective. Let's pray. Father God, um, when you, when Jesus um, commissioned the apostles, he came from a place of all authority and he gave them authority to go out into all the world and to disciple nations. And then that authority continues from one believer to another in perpetuity that all of us can trace our spiritual lineage. One day, our spiritual lineage will be traced back to that moment and that great commission which is just a really amazing thought, that we're the descendants of someone who received that commission. And so, Father God, in the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus, I pray over this church that you would commission it to your purposes to go and disciple nations, 
teaching them to obey all that you've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We pray for these believers. We pray for this first church of Chios, made up of four men and women from Sierra Leone. We commission them in the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus to reach that camp with the gospel. And we trust, God, that you will move. Lord, protect all of this young life. But we know that your spirit will begin the work that it starts. In your name we pray. Amen.